Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Hey, Amber, how's it going? Natalie, I'm so glad to be with you. Stephen Trader's been holding it down for us with you, and the episodes have been great. But I can't resist. I had to come on the show at least once, but maybe I will later in the term, too. You know, I love talking about SCOTUS, so I really want to hit it today because, Natalie, you and I really had our work cut out for us. We're recording this on Thursday like we always do. Decisions dropped this morning, so we have a real scramble to get ready for the show. Finally. I'm so happy to have you on this week because this is, like, such good news for me. (laughs) Like, I've been, like, moaning about how... They have not been releasing opinions like this time as of like this time last week, they had like 44 cases open, right, that they had not decided. It's a wild number. They've finally like taken a nice sized chunk out of that and they dropped five opinions today. Yeah, it's nice to get some. We're going to talk, you know, we have to be a little choosy. The show's not, you know, hours and hours long. So you picked one. I picked one. We're just going to trade stories about what SCOTUS did today. That's right. Now, before we go into that, though, I just did want to give a small update on a case that we've been watching. Um, One of the biggest cases this term comes out of North Carolina, Moore v. Harper, where the justices are reviewing the state's controversial theory uh, about whether state courts can review rules for federal elections set by state lawmakers. Um, The underlying case is alleged gerrymandering. It's a big election map case before the court. Um, And we've talked about it before. It's been argued. (laughs) We're we're awaiting the opinion. It's one of the 44, uh, now 39. Um, But recently, at the end of April, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled in cases connected to this one that gerrymandering accusations are not the purview of state courts because registering is a political issue to be fought at the state general assembly, basically. Um, So they made this decision. They basically overruled one case, withdrew their opinion in another case, which has now left the Supreme Court saying, uh, does this impact our jurisdiction here? Um, It's a good question, right? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts on the ground here. So, of course, the court's wondering if they should be weighing in at this point. Exactly. So they've asked the parties and the U.S. Solicitor General to weigh in um, and file briefs. And those briefs are due today. Um, So we don't have any updates on like what the parties are going to argue um but expect kind of a decision on this whether an actual opinion or they decide to potentially you know toss it back to the lower courts yeah that's definitely one to watch so glad we at least put it on everybody's radar but now i think let's turn to the meat of this week do you want to kick us off natalie tell me which case you're bringing to the table Yes. So this case is one we've talked about, actually, um, a few months back, Santos Zacaria versus Garland. And it's a case involving a trans asylum seeker. The justices ruled that the federal appeals court does have the authority to review Board of Immigration Appeals decisions in cases that allege like the board mishandled them. And this is a pretty big case in that it kind of cracks open the door for many other people who might be in similar situations where they're alleging that there's been an error, their case has been mishandled, and they want to go to the courts rather than continue on with the BIA, um, the Board of Immigration Appeals, to get some sort of clarification on their case. 
Natalie, I'm really glad we're talking about this one. Um, I don't know if you even knew this, but I have a long history of immigration reporting in my background, so I'm always super interested I about what's remem- going on. I remembered that after I called dibs on this case, and I was like, oh, I should have called dibs on this case. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I want I want to hear you explain it, and I'm just really curious about how where the justice is netted out. But before we get to sort of what they actually did t- this morning— Give me some background. What do we need to know? I mean, I, you said a lot of buzzwords there. Asylum, um, a, a trans person is a, is a, the heart of this case. How did that all play out? What's our background? Yes. And, and please feel free to like jump in with any nuance that I might not have on the immigration case. But yes, so the case involves Leon Santos Zacaria, a transgender woman who's been fighting removal to her native Guatemala. She claims that she's going to suffer further persecution for her gender identity and sexual orientation. Her lawyers have said, this is a life or death case and that the BIA made an error in her case. They've mishandled it, basically leaving her unable to stay in the country right now um, if like, they don't fix it. Um, so they took the case to the Fifth Circuit, but the Fifth Circuit said she'd failed to exhaust her remedies, that, they, that she needs to first protest to the BIA that they've made this error, they've mishandled it, so they can't step in, they're saying. Section... 1252 D1 of the Immigration Nationality Act does say you have to exhaust all remedies before you turn to federal courts. And so that this is the little bit of the law that the justices are really looking at with this case. Um, and this is actually classic immigration stuff, too, because <laughs> anybody in this space will tell you it is so much about the details of moving through the process. So this is one that certainly people involved with these kind of cases will be watching really closely about like, do you have to do that? Is that what the rule really says, that part of the statute? And that's the big question she asked the Supreme Court. She asked specifically, is this little snippet, this little bit of the rule, is it jurisdictional or claims processing? And just to break that down, jurisdictional means that the courts under no circumstances can review a case because they lack jurisdiction. But if it's a claims processing rule, that allows courts to occasionally waive the rule, step in, and review the case. With Thursday's basically unanimous decision, and I'll get into that, uh, written by Justice Jackson, they're saying the rule is a claims processing rule and reverse the Fifth Circuit and remand the case back down. Okay, so I understand the basics of what you're talking about, but can we dig in a little more? Because it does seem like that distinction between jurisdictional and claims processing is pretty critical here. And that's probably the part that's going to be the big takeaway for everybody. So what else did they say about that? Definitely. And this is really what the justices grappled with the most, I think, at arguments um, when we spoke about it back in January. And the ultimate opinion is basically centers about around how you know if a rule is jurisdictional or if it's claims processing, which gives a lot more guidance, I think, for folks. Honestly, to- my nerd heart is singing. Um, <laughs> how, how do you decide if something is jurisdictional or claims processing? I have no idea. Well, the court's saying like pretty flat out, Congress has to clearly state that this is jurisdictional for them to consider it as such. Um, and remember, jurisdictional means it puts bounds on the court's authority to step in under anything with this law. Yeah. So they're basically saying if you're going to put boundaries on the courts, you have to say it and you have to say it plainly. Yeah. And Justice Jackson wrote that merely having a statute that addresses the court and limits review does not necessarily mean the statute governs the court's jurisdiction. 
that sounds a little complicated when you read it in those terms, but I yeah. understand what you're saying. Like, it's basically, you know, just because they mentioned this, they, they didn't clearly say that this is jurisdictional. Yeah. That's a problem. There is not a line that says the federal courts cannot step in. Right. When you've not exhausted all your remedies before this agency. And there was actually also a second point here with that section of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, so basically, it requires exhausting only remedies available as of right. So here again, for kind of like legal nerds <laughs> interested in the phrasing of, of legislation, uh, as of right means it's legally required to be reviewed. It's not, it's guaranteed, it's not discretionary. So in Santos Zacarias' case, though, the board does not have to hear her like appeal of this error in her case. It's it's discretionary for the board to take up further proceedings in her case. Given that, there the justices are saying, well, this doesn't fall anyway into that piece of legislation because it's not as of right. It's discretionary. So they're saying on both ends, both this is not a jurisdictional rule. And even if it was, her case doesn't qualify. Now, I'll say Justices Alito notably wrote a concurrence that was joined by Justice Thomas that said they would have stopped with just ruling that Santos Zacarias case should be able to go to the court because it's not as of right. They would not have ruled that this bit of the legislation was not jurisdictional. It was a very short concurrence, though. They didn't really go completely into why they wouldn't have ruled that. So what are we expecting broad impact wise from this one? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty broad implications here. Um, The last time we spoke about this case in January, there were a about over a million cases pending before the BIA. Now, even if like a small chunk of those kind of fall into these parameters, that's a lot of cases that could potentially be finding their way back to the court system. Definitely one to watch in that immigration space. Uh, I'm going to take a hard pivot for what I brought to the table to talk about today. It's a case called National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. It is about the pork industry and the dormant commerce clause and Please, Natalie, don't fall asleep. I swear this one's interesting. So. I'm all ears. I'm actually interested in commerce class issues. So this, this. Okay, I'm, great. I'm I, assuming I'm it's going to be exciting in some way. Very glad I have a willing audience. <laughs> Go with me on this. It, it too has some pretty broad implications. So, the court here upheld a California ballot initiative that banned in-state sales of pork born from pigs who were kept in confined housing. That keeps in place a lower court ruling that tossed a lawsuit from the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation. They had challenged this voter-approved ballot initiatives about the conditions of pigs. And just so you kind of know, you know, what what do we mean the conditions of pigs here? What are we talking about? The the law requires that um, it's not just pigs, it's egg-laying hens, veal calves, and breeding pigs be allowed what they call freedom of movement. So They have to be housed um, essentially in some cage-free designs. The animals have to be able to lay down, stand up, fully extend their limbs. It's an animal cruelty law at its core. It's basically making sure that these animals have a somewhat decent life before they head to the slaughterhouse, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So how big a deal is this case exactly? I mean, I don't know much about the pork market. (laughs) Well... 
I've learned in reading about this case. So it, it's I know it sort of seems like a small thing we're talking about, just this sort of animal cruelty measure. Also, many people expect these kind of things to come out of California, a very progressive place and their stances on things like animal rights. But this one really does have some bigger, broader nationwide impacts. So during arguments in the case in October, some of the justices worried that greenlighting an animal cruelty law like this one would give state legislators license to pass laws about anything they disapprove of. So they could say, hey, we won't let you sell products in our state if it's produced by unvaccinated workers or undocumented workers or any number of things you can imagine in this scenario. So that was one side of the concerns. On the flip side, other justices worried that many state laws would be called into question if California can't have this law stay in place, that there are other things that are already on the books that would potentially fall if this was deemed Uh, in violation of that dormant commerce clause. The Biden administration had also weighed in on this and urged the justices to side with the pork producers because they said any other ruling would, quote, throw a giant wrench in the nation's pork market, and it could raise the prices of things like bacon, other pork products. And I think that's really top of mind for an administration right now when inflation's already very high for groceries and, and things that people are buying every day. Pork, it turns out, is, in fact, very big business. There are sales around $26 billion a year. The ruling staying in place is likely to force the industry to change its practices everywhere, even though pork is almost entirely produced outside of California. It's interesting. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't want my, like, annual pernil around, like, the holiday season to go up here. What did the justices decide in this case? They decided that that California law stands, but... I'll be honest, the lineup here is pretty convoluted. Um, To boil it down to like the most basic resolution here, the vote in that instance is 5-4, a controlling opinion where the justices said that the pork producers challenging the law failed to make a case that the law, in fact, imposed a substantial burden on interstate commerce. Justice Gorsuch wrote for the five justices that agreed to that. The controlling opinion agreed with the Ninth Circuit, which has said the law correctly regulates in-state and out-of-state actions the same way. So the Dormant Commerce Clause puts limits on state laws that affect conduct beyond the state's borders. That's just want to make that clear. But here, Gorsuch wrote that the pork producers don't allege that the California law seeks to advantage in-state firms while disadvantaging out-of-state ones. It applies to everybody. We just don't want pigs in cages before, you know, they move through the, the food processing Uh, steps. So that is the basics of what was decided here. Did want to just throw in one funny Gorsuch line that I just liked. Um, He wrote, while the Constitution addresses many weighty issues, the type of pork chops California merchants may sell is not on the list. Okay, that's pretty funny, I think, for Justice Gorsuch. Um, Now, you said this was complicated, this ruling and the lineup. I, I actually just took a little bit of a peek because I was actually trying to figure out if this was the first one where Justice Jackson dissented. And I think she dissented in part. Can it's, you talk a little bit all about parts, the lineup? Natalie. <laughs> it's all in parts. It's all agreeing with certain things, not others. And, um, you know, I will say this. I don't want to get too far because I think explaining it gets a little more confusing than it's than it's worth our while. Um, but there, like you said, there was a dissent. Some of the justices joined the majority but had differences in their reasoning. So they wrote many separate things here. Um, 
I don't want to get too deep into all of that, but I just do want to flag that for our dormant commerce clause heads out there because they may want to read more about it and how each justice got to their final stance in the case. A lot of what they were disagreeing about is a whether or not there should be and what kind of balancing test to assess claims under the dormant commerce clause. There are many disagreements uh, elucidated by this ruling about whether a test like that is even workable. So for anybody who's really nerding out on Commerce Clause stuff, like I think you said you are, Natalie, this is a good one to go and read. I think we're going to have a lot of analysis of it here at Law360. So people should come over to our website, get sort of a full rundown of what this really means, because it is beyond just this agriculture thing and and this food processing thing. This dormant commerce clause things do come up from time to time. And so the understanding the justices have of it could have implications in any number of areas. Definitely, definitely. And actually, as we mentioned earlier, there were other opinions as well, some somewhat notable ones and involving the sovereignty of like Puerto Rico's oversight board and uh, involving the convictions of some scandal plagued folks uh, in New York. So I highly encourage uh, listeners to go check out our our website, as Amber said, and just uh, read up on, on some of the other news that we didn't get to today, unfortunately. But Amber, this has been great um, chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. It was my pleasure, Natalie. Um, it's been a lot of fun, and I think we've got many more, like you said, 39 cases still waiting on opinions, so we'll have lots more to talk about in the coming weeks. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Thanks to our additional reporting by Jess Kochtangle, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and Britton Eakin. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.